Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Welcome to 2018, ladies and gentlemen. How do we know that the Gospels in the New Testament are historically reliable? How do we know that? What evidence do we have for that? Uh, There's a gentleman who you may have heard of, maybe you haven't heard of him, but if you haven't heard of him, you need to hear of him. His name is Dr. Craig Blomberg, and Dr. Blomberg has been an expert on this topic for over 30 years. In fact, I'm holding in my hand right now a book that I used when Dr. Geister and I wrote, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. The book is called The Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Dr. Craig Blomberg. This book uh, goes back to 1987, just when uh, Dr. Blomberg began uh, teaching at Denver Seminary. It has been updated in 2007, and it is one of the standard works on the topic, the historical reliability of the Gospels. And Dr. Blomberg is our guest today. He is also teaching a new t- a course on this uh, that uh, that we're hosting. You can go to crossexamine.org, click on uh, resources, and you'll see online courses there. And you're going to have an opportunity to learn from him in depth if you want to go much further than just our radio program today. Uh, in fact, this online course is going to begin January 30th. So it's a great privilege to have Dr. Craig Blomberg all the way from the UK on with us today. Dr. Blomberg, how are you? Very well, thank you. Well, thanks for joining us via Skype from the UK uh, to talk about this uh, amazing topic, the topic that is essential, of course, to the Christian faith. Are the Gospels reliable? Now, first of all, give give our listeners a little bit of background, uh, Craig. How did you get interested in this very topic, the historical reliability of the Gospels? Well, that is indirectly related to why I'm in England at the moment. Years ago, I uh, did my doctoral study in Aberdeen, Scotland, and uh, got to know uh, a lot of the the British uh, evangelical world, which uh, included in the 80s an international team of evangelicals who was working on something called the Gospels Project, it led to the publication of uh, six volumes of fairly technical essays on many, many different facets of the reliability of the Gospels. They had always wanted, when they went into this project, to find someone who would then take those results, um, turn them into a readable book, uh, add areas that weren't covered, and I was privileged to be invited to to play that role, and that's what led to uh, the initial publication of the Historical Reliability of the Gospels, which you've kindly referenced already. Well, this book, I used quite a bit in our research when we uh, did I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. It's the standard work on the topic, 
and uh, you updated it in 2007. I'm, I'm still looking at my marked up 1987 version. How much has changed in the past 30 years on this topic? It's interesting. It, it sort of goes decade by decade based on things that make it in the, the popular press and media. You know, 30 years ago, nobody had heard of Richard Dawkins and some of the outrageous but passionate things that he says, not just about not believing in God, but about how horrible the Bible is. And yet now, as, as I travel and speak, uh, people ask me questions that come verbatim from his writings, uh, whether they're aware they do or not, I don't know. Um, and then you've got uh, the type of thing that makes the uh, Internet uh, a buzz for a couple of weeks. Uh, over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen uh, the so-called uh, Tomb of Jesus. We've seen uh, the Gospel of Judas. We had what has now conclusively been shown to be a modern forgery, but at one point uh, duped even Karen King at Harvard into thinking it was a, a genuine ancient papyrus it referred to Jesus having a wife. And every time one of these uh, finds or pseudo finds hits, um, it just uh, creates a, a whole stir of interest um, and the need for us to keep talking about what really is true. Well, it's interesting. The course that you're going to teach, and again, you can, if you want to join this course, friends, you can. You can go to crossexamine.org, click on uh, resources. You'll see online courses there. The course you're going to teach, I just watched the first episode uh, last uh, night. It, it talks about uh, widely held myths about ancient sources. And some of the things you just mentioned are in that first episode, uh, the Gospel of right. Judas, the, uh, the, uh, the forgery that got the, uh, the woman at Harvard to think that Jesus had a wife. And you also mentioned something. I was shocked at this, Craig, when you said this, but uh, you were talking about how the Da Vinci Code, the book The Da Vinci Code, obviously got something wrong, and yet college professors are teaching it as if it's fact. It had to do with the Trinity and the Council of Nicaea. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's, it's astonishing. Um, uh, although uh, Dan Brown did put the words a novel on uh, his cover, they were, they were fairly small, <laughs> and then made this very misleading statement on the opening page of his book that said, uh, all references to uh, places and artwork and architecture and ancient individuals, I forget exactly how it was phrased, are true. So it gave you the idea that, okay, you were going to read a story about modern characters going on a sleuthing expedition, but that whenever it referred to something in the ancient world, in the history of Christianity, at least that much was true. Well, none of those statements are true. There's made up stuff about artwork, there's made up stuff about architecture, there are claims in there about there being as many as 80 ancient Gospels, not in the New Testament. Nobody has ever found even a quarter that many. Um, and uh, then one of the characters talks about the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, a town in what today would be modern Turkey, where the uh, Christian bishops of the empire in those days got together 
and supposedly decided among all these many, many books on which would be in the New Testament. Well, anybody who has ever been uh, a Catholic, a Lutheran, an Anglican, Episcopalian, uh, or any other kind of Christian that regularly recites the Nicene Creed in church knows that uh, this was a council to hash out what these uh, Christian leaders understood the Bible to teach about the Trinity. The Nicene Creed has three parts to it. The first begins, I believe in God the Father. The second, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. The third begins, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and goes on to say what Christians believed about that. There was nothing in 325 at Nicaea about selecting books for New Testament. But again, as I travel uh, and just hang around Denver and meet a lot of uh, younger people, the number of times I have met somebody who has told me that in their introduction to religious studies class or something, it's usually not an advanced class of any kind, but, but some introductory class in the university, they have been told by their instructors that uh, Nicaea was all about choosing the books in the canon. And it's clear <laughs> that uh, the, the sum total of the research of these professors is uh, some website that fights uh, <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Well, we're talking to Craig Blomberg. This is a book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, is now an online course you can take. Go to crossexamine.org, click on resources, you'll see it. It begins January 30th. and. We're going to go through some of the material in the course. You're not going to believe the amount of information that you need to know to defend the Gospels, but you're going to do it right here. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go away. The historical reliability of the Gospels. How good is the historical reliability of the Gospels? My guest is Dr. Craig Blomberg, an expert on this topic for over 30 years and the instructor for you at this new online course that you can access via crossexamine.org. And in this course, you'll not just see uh, 30, 20 to 30 minute video sessions of Dr. Blomberg going through all this amazing material. You'll also have three opportunities to come live online and uh, via video and ask Dr. Blomberg questions. That's the kind of the unique thing about the courses we're developing now. We're bringing the actual experts online so you can ask them questions live. Uh, if you take the premium version of the course, you'll have the opportunity to do that. And let me just list some of the things that we're going to go over, or Dr. Blomberg's going to go over on this course. We just mentioned some some myths and uh, about ancient sources. He's going to talk about uh, what should be in the canon or what books were not included and why. He's going to talk about the text of the New Testament and translations, who wrote the New Testament, the dating of the Gospels, the reliability of oral tradition. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I can't even list them all here on the radio. Uh, but you can be a part of this course if you want to be a part of it. He talks about the problem of miracles and, of course, the resurrection. He talks about the reliability of uh, uh, the Gospel of John, which uh, Dr. Blomberg is an expert on. Uh, there's just so much material here that you're going to want to know, and you're going to be able to defend the reliability of the Gospels 
extremely well. Some of the material is technical, but Dr. Blomberg makes it easy to understand. So you're going to want to be a part of this uh, course. And and Craig, let me just ask you a couple of questions here about the the uh, books. You mentioned that that Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code said there's 80 gospels and nobody's found even a quarter as many. But are there books that you know we hear about the Gospel of Thomas, we hear about the Gospel of Judas, and the Gospel of Peter, and these? Why were they not included in the New Testament? Well, the simplest answer to that is uh, that they don't go back to apostolic Christianity. Uh, Although you get some claims to the contrary, the actual evidence doesn't support uh, the appearance of of any of those texts before the mid-2nd century, whereas uh, the four New Testament Gospels were most likely uh, first-century documents. But then the uh, nature of their contents is also remarkably different. Uh, There really aren't any existing narratives like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They got called Gospels uh, because uh, modern scholars discovering them had to give them a name. But uh, they're basically collections of Jesus' sayings or discourses, and many of them uh, have a very Gnostic-like ring to them. Gnosticism was uh, an ancient blend between uh, Christianity and Greek philosophy in which the material world was inherently evil, and... um, There was no resurrection of the body because you wouldn't want to go uh, through eternity with something evil attached. And most of these documents don't even talk about Jesus' life. Uh, They don't contain his deeds or miracles. They're supposedly um, conversations he had privately with select followers after his death and resurrection to reveal to them secret teachings so that uh, they could find the uh, spark of divinity lying deep inside of each of them. If you're looking for modern parallels, uh, the so-called New Age movement gives you more of them than uh, historic Christianity. We're talking to Dr. Craig Blomberg. He's over He's over in the UK via Skype, so we may have had dropped out there a little bit. But you were talking about the, uh, the so-called Gospel of Peter and the Gospel of Judas. These are second right. century, not first century eyewitness accounts. So, uh, Dr. Blomberg, these are... Is it fair to say these are forgeries because the names on these these later so-called gospels weren't really written by Peter and Judas and Mary and and and, and these and Thomas? Correct. That's correct. Um, forgery uh, tends to uh, suggest a, a blatant uh, attempt to deceive, and mm-hmm. we don't actually know enough about um, the origins and and who was behind this. Um, people who have studied uh, the use of uh, names on documents in the ancient world uh, have certainly shown that things we would call forgeries did exist, and in other cases, there seem to be uh, less malignant motives. Um, it's it's hard to be sure, but you're certainly right that uh, these uh, books were not written anywhere close enough in time to be by the, the people they claim to be. 
Now, what about the authorship and dating of the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I know that many scholars try and say that these are late in the first century, if that. Um, when you wrote the historical reliability of the Gospels back in 1987, I don't know if Colin Hemmer's work had been out by then. I think Hemmer completed his work in 1989, the uh, Roman historian, I believe he was, that uh, uh, pointed out that he thought that Acts was written by 62, and if Acts is written by 62, Luke is prior to Acts, uh, so Luke is sometime in the 50s probably. What is your view on the dating uh, of the Gospels? And, and then we can talk about the authorship after that. Yeah, I, I had the privilege uh, to get to know Colin when he was still alive. Um, unfortunately, uh, he died uh, before he even reached his 60s due to cancer. And uh, another gentleman, Conrad Gempf, edited his work so that it could be published. Um, he, of course, wasn't the first one to, to ever uh, put that argument forward, but uh, mm -hmm. he defended it very well. I'm, I'm inclined to adopt it. Uh, there are all kinds of ways to try to explain the end of the book of Acts, um, but it is very odd that uh, you follow uh, Paul heading for Jerusalem with Agabus having prophesied that if he goes there, uh, chains and imprisonment await him, and uh, that's in fact what happens, and then he appeals, and he's sent to Rome, put under house arrest, and awaiting the outcome of this appeal, the end. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, unless that's the point at which Luke wrote uh, the book, it, it is a very odd ending. And we can date the events in the book of Acts quite precisely and come up with uh, most likely uh, 62 when uh, Paul had been in house arrest for two years, uh, as the end of the book of Acts says. Which then means that uh, the gospel would have to have been written just a little bit before that. Uh, so it's not the only possible way to explain it, but I think it, it still makes very good sense. Now, you wrote another book that I have on my shelf here that I've used quite a bit. It's, a bit, it's called The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel. And, uh, friends, we're talking to Dr. Craig Blomberg. He is a, a professor at Denver Seminary. He's been there for about 30 years. And uh, he's teaching a new online course that you can access at crossexamine.org. Click on uh, uh, resources and online courses, and you'll, you'll see the course. It begins uh, January 30th. Uh, now, Craig, this book, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, you cite, and we repeat these in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, you cite 59 historically probable or historically certain eyewitness details in the Gospel of John. We list them, as I say, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. What is your view on the on the dating of John's Gospel? Because I spoke to Dan Wallace, who has also taught a course for us, which people can access as well at crossexamine.org, and Dan seems to think that the Gospel of John is prior to 70 A.D., uh, due to the fact, at least partially, because John mentions in uh, John chapter 5 that the Pool of Bethesda is still standing. Of course, it wasn't standing in 70 A.D., so so his, his uh, conclusion is that, and for other reasons, the Gospel of John is written prior to 70 A.D. Where do, where do you put it, uh, dating-wise? Well, it's interesting. Um, evangelicals tend to give uh, the evidence of the early church fathers uh, more uh, credence than the average uh, critic does. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. And because of what uh, people like uh, Irenaeus and Origen and Tertullian and Eusebius in the uh, second and third centuries wrote, uh, we can date Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, even without um, going to the internal evidence, the actual uh, details of what they wrote. Uh, if those later Christian writers were accurate, uh, we can date uh, the so-called Synoptic Gospels to the 60s. Mm-hmm. They also uh, uniformly date the Gospel of John to the 90s, and there are a number of traditions about John being a very elderly man, living out his life uh, after he had been briefly exiled on the island of Patmos, uh, living up till the time of the Emperor Trajan, which would have been the year 98. Um, and so uh, I am inclined to think that they probably knew what they were talking about and mm-hmm. uh, go with uh, a dating to sometime in the, in the 90s as well. Uh, it's true that in John 5.2, uh, John does say, now there is in Jerusalem uh, by the pool of Bethesda, uh, the sheep gate. And uh, Dan says, well, we don't have any evidence that people used that kind of language for events that were past. Mm. But in fact, in all of the Gospels, uh, what is called the historical present tense, and Dan knows well about this. He's authored a major grammar. Uh, When you want to make something very vivid, uh, you'll be narrating the past tense, and all of a sudden, Pharisees approach, and Jesus says, and there's a shift to the present tense, even though it's very clear that the narrator is still talking about what happened years earlier. Dan counters and says, well, we just don't find that with the... the verb to be. Mm. How strong an argument is that? There really are no other parallels in the Gospels to the kind of statement that we have in John 5, 2. So I'm just not persuaded that's a very strong argument. All right. Well, that's... uh... Regardless, as you point out in the book, uh, The Historical Reliability of John's Gospel, it it was written by an eyewitness or somebody at least that knew an eyewitness because there's so many eyewitness details in there. Maybe we'll get into that after the break. This show's going too quickly, ladies and gentlemen. My guest is uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg, The Historical Reliability of the Gospel's new course that you can take starting January 30th at crossexamine.org. We'll talk more after the break. Don't go away. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. I can guarantee you you're not going to hear this on NPR. We're talking about the historical reliability of the Gospels with Dr. Craig Blomberg. His book of the same title, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and a new course that you can start begin to take, or you can begin to take uh, January 30th. And if you will take the premium version, you'll be able to ask Dr. Blomberg questions live via video 
Uh, there's 30, 20 to 30 minute uh, video lectures on there, plus uh, a whole bunch of interaction you'll have with the other students. Uh, so you'll want to be a part of this course. Also, I want to mention that I'll be teaching a course, Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. That begins on January 15th. And in the same way, I'll be live answering your questions via Zoom video if you take the premium version. So you got to sign up for that soon. By the way, all the courses uh, that have already been um, been posted on uh, the website, crossexamine.org, uh, courses by Gary Habermas on the resurrection, courses by Dan Wallace on the uh, text of the New Testament. Uh, you can take anytime you want now. You can take the basic program. You can just sign up and 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 take it self-paced. So all the courses you can take at any time except the ones that haven't started yet. Uh, as I say, the Stealing from God course starts on January 15th, which you can sign up for, and the course with my guest today, Dr. Craig Blomberg, The Historical Liability of the Gospels, you can uh, take beginning January 30th. And if you're hearing this after those two dates, you can jump in at any time. So just go to crossexamine.org, click on resources. You'll see the, all the online courses listed there. Now, uh, Dr. Blomberg, uh, we were talking about the dating of the Gospel of John, and you've pointed out that it has eyewitness evidence in it. And one of the first places, I think it probably was the first place I saw this criteria of embarrassment uh, yeah. that, that we put quite a bit uh, into in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. The first place I saw it was your book, uh, the principle of embarrassment. Tell uh, tell our listeners a little bit about the principle of embarrassment and why it it adds to the what we would believe would be the truth of the uh, New Testament documents. Why is that a good criteria to say, hey, they're probably telling the truth here? Well, it's actually a, a criterion that was uh, deliberate uh, uh, developed by the uh, more skeptical form critics in the heyday of uh, 20th century form criticism, where the assumption was that uh, a majority of what uh, was found in the Gospels uh, at best um, was something that happened, but there would be no way we could corroborate it, and at worst was made up. Uh, but the argument, and I, I think it makes very good sense, uh, is that if there are details included in the text that cut against the grain of the author's uh, emphases theologically, what he's trying to say about Jesus or about the nature of uh, the early church, uh, the type of thing that would actually be embarrassing uh, if you harped on it too much, uh, that's not likely to be something that anybody would make up. You would make up things that would, uh, if anybody was making things up, that would bolster uh, the things you were trying to emphasize. What would be some examples of embarrassing testimony in the New Testament? Um, Luke fourteen twenty six. Uh, Jesus tells uh, the crowds that uh, whoever would uh, be my disciple must uh, hate his father or mother, mm. uh, fellow family members. Well, this in a Jewish context that uh, was more loyal to family than uh, focus on the family ever has been, <laughs> and. Uh, if, uh, if that wasn't something solidly embedded in uh, what 
the disciples understood Jesus to have really said who else in that environment would have made it up. Now, fortunately, mm. we have a parallel in Matthew 10 that says uh, on another occasion, Jesus told the disciples, whoever does not love God far more than these fellow family members is not worthy of me. And okay, that at least makes it understandable, still doesn't make it easy, uh, but uh even there, you, you come away saying, this is not the kind of thing that uh, makes Jesus uh, look attractive. Uh, it doesn't make him look good when in, in Mark 13, I think it's uh, uh, verse 32, it says that uh, he said that the Son of Man doesn't even know the day or hour of his return. Mm. Um and this was written at a time when uh, the church was glorifying Jesus as God incarnate and the exalted Lord who surely knew everything. Um, of course, we understand that there were limitations in the incarnation, but uh, you have to do some theological reflection to, mm. to get there. It's not the type of thing you would just throw in. It doesn't advance any agenda of the gospel writer. Why, why would they also uh, cast Peter in such a negative light with regard to his denying Christ and running away? I guess all the disciples ran away at the crucifixion as well. That, that doesn't appear to be something that uh, is, uh, is, is a very positive comment. It's an embarrassing comment. Why would they include right. that? Uh, and, and you point much of that out in the book, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and so much more you'll learn in the course also, I want to talk a little bit uh, uh, with you, Dr. Blomberg, as well, about the uh, the unique problem of miracles. And there's a point that you make. And in fact, I'm looking on page 92 of your book, uh, and this may, this is the first version of it, so I don't know if it's, the pagination has changed. Um, but you talk about the fact that um, there's no known comparable pattern to Jesus' miracles in any other so-called miracle worker. What do you mean by that? The central theme of Jesus' teaching that is widely understood by scholars of all different kinds is that the kingdom of God was arriving. When you study everything the Gospels teach about Jesus' miracles, they very clearly fit into that same pattern. The miracles show that the kingdom is arriving, and if the kingdom is arriving, then a king has to be arriving, and Jesus is that king. Uh, that is not the kind of uh, integrated uh, theme that you find in Greco-Roman mythology, that you find in uh, the literature of ancient Hinduism, that you find in uh, the miracles of Moses or Elijah in the Old Testament, it is uh, completely unique. And you also point out, uh, and you'll get into this in the course as well, again, if you want to be a part of this course, the historical reliability of the Gospels, go to crossexamine.org, click on uh, resources, you'll see the online courses there. You point out that there have been uh, people, I'm looking at page 83 now of the book, there have been people in the past, uh, in ancient history, who have, who have, uh, they've people have attributed miracles to them, but you point out that, uh, 
you're speaking of Apollonus here. I, I guess that's the right way to pronounce it. Of course, virtually nobody believes that Apollonus really did these and other prodigies uh, attributed to him. And you make the point that the impact of Jesus's miracles seems to indicate that these miracles that Jesus did actually did occur, unlike these other ale- alleged miracles. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, maybe the most important thing uh, to say there is is a point of chronology. Um, Apollonius uh, lived in the second century, and the only way we know about his supposed miracles was from uh, a biographer of his called Philostratus, who lived in the fourth century. So you've got a 200-year gap, and you've got somebody who did not overlap with the life of Jesus at all. Um, there are uh, one or two accounts. Uh, the most uh, notable one is a story of Apollonius supposedly uh, raising a young boy as, as part of uh, his funeral procession that has some remarkable similarities to uh, Luke 7 and uh, the story of the widow's son in Nain. Uh, but uh, if somebody is borrowing from somebody else and, and making anything up, it would have to be uh, Philostratus's biography, Borrowing from the Christian Tradition, which by the 4th century was extremely well known. Uh, this can't have, have influenced the gospel writers in any way. And you asked earlier what, what has uh, happened in the last uh, 30 years and how is the second edition different? One answer to that is that there are a lot of people these days saying, well, here's some mythological parallel that the Christians must have borrowed in order to say what they did about Jesus. Look at the dates. Almost all of them are post-Christian. They cannot have been the sources for the gospel writers. And uh, the point that uh, you make in the book, and I know you'll make in the course as well, is and maybe this needs to be unpacked a little bit more. It seems to me, Craig, that uh, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, um, the the emergence of the church out of Jerusalem, the city that he allegedly rose from the dead in, is inexplicable, particularly with regard to the initial followers and the writers of the New Testament being Jews. What are Jews doing inventing a resurrected Jesus uh, they already thought they were God's chosen people. It seems to me they had no motive to invent such a story. Uh, yet you have this church emerging out of Judaism in the very city of Jerusalem. How, how does that That's happen right. if a resurrection didn't occur? I, I sometimes like to say that uh, the critics could almost have an argument if uh, Jesus had been born and lived in Greece and taught uh, in and around uh, the uh, Greek philosophical world, and then a generation or two later, uh, everything that was originally all about immortality of the soul made its way to uh, Israel, where they believed in the resurrection of the body, and so now it starts to get clothed in in very material garb. That that could almost be a a plausible uh, notion, but there's there's no way to say that... uh, stories that were just metaphors uh, originally uh, in Israel, by the time they got to Greece and Rome a hundred years later, uh, got filled up with uh, bodily resurrection because 
back to the criterion of embarrassment. That just made it harder for anybody to uh, accept the gospel. That's uh, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. It's, it's foolishness to Jews and Greeks. Mm. We're talking to Dr. Craig Blomberg, the author of The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and a brand new course you can be a part of beginning January 30th. Go to crossexamine.org, click on resources. You'll see online courses there. You can ask Dr. Blomberg questions live during the course, so you want to be a part of it. There's so much more we're going to talk about in this final segment, so don't go away. I'm Frank Turek. See you in a minute. How do we know the Gospels are historically reliable? No better person to talk to about it than my friend Dr. Craig Blomberg, who has a book by the title, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels, and will be teaching a new course that you can access via crossexamine.org. Beginning January 30th, click on Resources, and you'll see uh, online courses there. You can also uh, join me online for Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case, beginning January 15th, so you don't want to miss that. Love to see you online, and we'll uh, take your questions live online if you take the premium version of the course. Uh, now, uh, Craig, we've... I, I wish I could just go through the the list of topics here that you're going to cover in this course, I can't because we'd run out of time. But one particular topic I'm looking at right now in front of me is non-Christian evidence for Jesus, which uh, you'll cover in the course. Tell us a little bit about that. What is the evidence from non-Christian sources about Jesus, his existence, and and potentially even his resurrection? There are... uh many as seven or eight uh, different uh, documents uh, or collections of traditions, as in the case of uh, ancient Judaism, which together uh, give us um, a dozen or more references to uh, Jesus. Uh, I don't give a precise number because a couple of the Jewish uh, references simply talk about an unnamed false teacher, uh, but it sure sounds like they're referring to Jesus. But if you put all of these uh, Jewish, Greek, and Roman sources from the earliest centuries of Christianity together, um, and and they all are clearly not um, uh, promoting uh, Christian thought in any way, there is reason to believe uh, from those sources alone that uh, Jesus was uh, a Jew who lived in the first third of the first century. Um, He intersected with the life and ministry of a man named John who called on people to be baptized as a sign of their repentance. He was born out of wedlock. He gathered disciples. Five of them are named. Uh, He was known to uh, take views of the Jewish law that ran afoul of the prevailing perspectives of the teachers of his day. And he worked uh, what Josephus calls uh, wondrous deeds. Um, And uh, his followers uh, believed that he was uh, the Messiah. But he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, which allows us to date things to somewhere between 26 to 36, the 10 years of uh, Pilate's reign in Judea. And yet, despite that most 
excruciating and ignominious of deaths, uh, was said to have been seen alive again by uh, many, and uh, his uh, followers did not uh, die out, but met on a regular basis, as one writer says, singing hymns to him as if he were a god. Mm. So that is not a huge amount of information, but it's about what you would expect at the time when uh, the existing historians uh, were almost all Greek and Roman, uh, far from Israel, no reason to even hear about what was going on in Israel, much less to write it up. And the one Jewish historian whose works have been preserved, Josephus, uh, has a, a significant paragraph about him. Now, uh, some will say, I know the atheists will try and say, well, yeah, but the Christians modified that one Josephus passage. Of course, there's another Josephus passage that Jesus is mentioned in with reference to his brother James. Uh, that hasn't been altered at all. But even the so-called altered passage, you get some good information from, don't you? The, the reason that some think that uh, Christians may have tampered uh, slightly with the passage is because uh, Josephus uh, speaks uh, about Jesus as um, having risen from the dead and having uh, been the Messiah, and yet there's no evidence that he ever became a Christian. Um, and all that we have from his rather extensive writings suggests that he remained a faithful Jew apart from Jesus. Uh, but there are places uh, where he uses the language of the so-called Christ, mm. and it would be very easy to imagine that one or two references to so-called could have been deleted by early Christians, uh, even perhaps accidentally, but perhaps intentionally, and no reason to think that the rest of what Josephus says is... Uh, uh, in any way uh, um, inauthentic. He also mentions uh, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, is crucified, not crucified, is, is martyred, I should say, uh, by the Sanhedrin, and that passage is not disputed at all, is it? If you look hard enough, you can find somebody who will dispute almost anything. But as a good generalization, <laughs> no, right. it's not. <laughs> okay, well, that occurred in 62 AD, so we have some right. evidence of James, the half-brother of Jesus, dying for his brother, when apparently, and another piece of embarrassing testimony, John 7, 5, when, when James and Jesus were on the earth together before the resurrection, James didn't even believe in his brother, Jesus. But now, 30 years later, he's dying as a martyr in the very city Jesus alleged to have risen from the dead in. As Josephus records, jo Josephus may have even been in Jerusalem at the time in 62 AD to see that. So, in any event... Um, there is non-Christian evidence for Jesus, but, you know, it seems to me, Craig, that when people ask for that, they're almost uh, assuming that you can't trust the New Testament documents because they were written down by Christians. Why is that a bad argument? Well, for one reason, um, because a lot of those uh, Christians came to 
faith because of their encounter with the resurrected Christ. And a lot of right. people in subsequent generations uh, who became Christians weren't raised as believers, but uh, understood the apostles' testimony, found it convincing, uh, trusted in Jesus, experienced the Holy Spirit, couldn't deny his power, including power to work miracles. And so uh, it, it's really a bit disingenuous to say the only testimony I will trust is testimony by people who have examined a certain claim and rejected it. It would be sort of like saying, I will only let someone teach about modern um, astronomy who uh, has looked into it very carefully, but still belongs to the Flat Earth Society. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, the, the people who say that, they say, well, in fact, I remember watching a Discovery Channel special on this years ago and they said most of what we know about jesus comes from the gospels but we can't trust what they said because they those gospels were written by the converted and of course what the what the documentary failed to ask is why were they converted (laughs) what what evidence has (laughs) brought them to conversion especially being jews why would they invent this resurrected jesus it makes no sense at all especially since they were they thought they were god's chosen people and then they went and died for it in any event i got we, we 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 just got a few minutes left. We would be remiss if we did not mention something about the resurrection. And we're talking to Dr. Craig Blomberg, his new book. Well, his book that's been out a while, actually, The Historical Reliability of the Gospels is available. But also you can take a course with him. Go to crossexamine.org, click on resources. You'll see online courses there. It begins January 30th, and you can actually ask him questions live online. And he's going to go through all this material in great detail. You want to be a part of this course, sign up soon so you get a seat. We keep the classes small so you can interact with the instructor. But I got we got to talk a little bit about the resurrection, Dr. Blomberg. What do modern scholars who are not Christians who study this, who are New Testament scholars, what are their what theories did they, naturalistic theories, do they tend to bring up now to say, well, he didn't resurrect, here's my explanation as to, as to explain the data? What do they say? I think the most common is, is still the idea that the disciples must have had some powerful religious experience, but to use modern language, uh, it was a visionary experience. It was not uh, the kind of thing that uh, uh, could have been uh, viewed by everyone present, and therefore it's not objective but subjective. Um, That fits very nicely our postmodern world where you can have your religious truth and I can have mine, and they can contradict each other, uh, and that's just fine. Um, And don't judge me, and I won't judge you. (laughs) <laughs> well, we just got about, about 30 seconds, so please refute the hallucination hypothesis for us in 30 seconds. <laughs> um, well, it goes back to um, an extremely early time period. Um, it's found among what Paul says over 500 people saw him at many different times and places. Uh, Gary Habermas, who you've mentioned, has uh, researched uh, mass hallucination in great detail. And yes, there are examples throughout history of thousands of people seeing uh, a weeping 
virgin uh, in a painting or a statue someplace, but it's always triggered by an actual physical object at a specific location. Mm. There are no known parallels to the idea of a person appearing uh, to hundreds of people over a period of time in different places mm. apart from being provoked by something tangible. Uh, that's Dr. Craig Blomberg. Of course, doesn't explain the empty tomb either, but you'll, you'll get all the the data if you take the course, the historical reliability of the Gospels. Go to crossexamine.org. Craig, thanks for being on the show. I can't wait for this course. You want to be a part of it. Also, Stealing from God starts January 15th. You want to be a part of that as well. Go to crossexamine.org, click on resources and online courses for more, and I'll see you next week. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.